Everyone doing okay? Good? Good? We are in the book of Romans. Been studying it for three weeks now. We are in chapter three today. If you haven't been with us, chapter two is a very interesting chapter, and it seems like Paul, who, who is a Jewish person, is really hammering on the Jews that are in Rome in the church uh, that, that makes the Roman people, okay? The Roman church. And so in chapter two, he's hammering on them quite a bit, and he's talking a lot about how they have made the outward appearance more important than what God has done in their hearts. And they talk about circumcision, and Paul makes the argument, he says, it's not the circumcision of the flesh, it's the circumcision of the heart. It's that God changes from the inside out, and he challenges them. He says, have you basically let God do a spiritual surgery on you? And that's what we talked about last week. Wrapped up chapter two, and, and oftentimes we, we come into this place, we worship, we have church, we even go over the Bible, but not, not as many of us as, as they should have, have been vulnerable and said, God, whatever you want to cut out of my life, cut it out. If you need to cut that out, if you need to expose some things in me, Lord, if you need to reveal light, shine light on certain, God, I invite you to do that. And it is only when we do that that we experience true transformation, this kind of spiritual surgery, if you will. So after chapter two, when he talks about the circumcision of the heart, we get into chapter three, and I'll be honest with you. If you just read chapter three, it's, it's, it's a little tough to digest. It, it, I'm just talking about myself. It kind of goes over my head a little bit. So one of the things I hope to do today is to take um, what is a very important chapter, and we'll talk about it today because it's ma mainly about salvation, but taking it and kind of put it in real-world terms for us today, okay? So that's what I hope to do with chapter three. And what we're going to talk about today is of the utmost importance. It's the reason why we're here we're going to talk about the fact that every single one of us, every human that's ever existed, has fallen short and needs a Savior. Now, that sounds very elementary to, to those of us in this room, possibly, but the narrative of culture right now is, you're good. Look inside yourself, follow your heart, follow your path. We all have our individual truths that work for us. You are told that you are inherently good. And that's exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. Guys, listen, the Bible's going to make it very clear today that we suck. And that sounds terrible, but there's going to be a turning point in chapter three. You're like, I didn't come to church to hear how bad I am. Unfortunately, it's the truth. We're terrible. But as terrible as we have been, God still loves us, sent his son to redeem us, and he wants to save us. So there's good news. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So we're all in need of saving. And today we're going to talk about by what means are we saved? We've all fallen short. We all need a savior. How does that happen, right? What do we do to go about receiving salvation? That's what we're going to talk about a little bit today, okay? So again, the first half's going to be a little rough. Second half's going to be really, really good. So you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything I'm going to say is in that notes handout. Everything should be on the screens around the room. If you're old school and have a physical copy of the Bible, we're in the New Testament, in the sixth book, in the third chapter. We'll do all of it today. We'll get through it pretty quick. If you have a smartphone, this is the most convenient thing to do. Pull up the app and all the notes and all the scripture are right there. You can just follow straight through. It's very, very convenient, okay? So I'm going to pray. We'll work through this today. It's really, really good to see you guys. And um, I might have been a little premature with the flip-flops because I think it was like 37 when I left the house today. <laughs> but I was like, well, it's supposed to be in the 60s later. So hopefully when we leave here, it's going to be nice. So let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you. God, thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity 
to get to do what we're doing right now. God, I thank you for everyone that's in this room, everyone who's watching online. God, I pray that you just keep your hand on us today, God, as we study your word. I pray, Lord, that it, that it, it really instructs us and encourages us and, and, and puts us in the right direction. Father, we don't just pray for our church. We pray for every church in our city. We pray for our other campuses and all the churches in their cities, God. We pray for all the churches we work with in New England, God, and churches in Africa and El Salvador, God, that we work with. We just pray for your church. I pray that everything we do today honors you, that it brings us closer to you, God, and we pray all these things in your son's name, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So again, this is a letter, so it reads like a letter, okay? I'm going to read a little bit, we'll go back and break it down, and um, I think you'll enjoy it, okay? So what advantage does the Jew have, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. What then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar. I love that. As it is written, that you may be justified in your own words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? Am I using a human argument? Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people have slanderously claimed we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. Okay, so again, if you weren't here last week, Paul tends to hammer on the Jewish people. He was a Jew. He's not anti-Semitic. He was coming down on them because the Jewish people in Paul's day thought they were better than everyone else because they knew more about God and they had more privileges. Here's the key to today. We can take out virtually every time says Paul says, Paul says Jew, we can remove Jew and put in North American Christian because we experience many of the same privileges that they did then today, okay? The point Paul was making in chapter two is you may know everything about God and you may do all the religious practices, but if you do not have a personal relationship with God, it's completely pointless. That was his thing in chapter two. So what he's gonna do though, he hammered on the Jews in chapter two, and then what he's going to do is kind of offer like a little bit of balance to that argument in chapter three. So the first question he says is, it seems like I really hammered on the Jews, but he says, is there an advantage to being a Jew? And he says, yes, there is. The first advantage of being a Jew was that they were the first ones to receive the knowledge of God. And though all people are welcomed into the kingdom of God, the Jewish people do hold a special place in the kingdom. Now we have to be careful with that because there's a lot of modern day Christians that believe some bad theology that just, be, just because people are born Jewish that they get a free ticket to heaven and that's not the case. Because in chapter two, Paul even says there is no favorites with God. Some have other advantages than other people, but all people must act on the knowledge of Christ and respond to the knowledge of Christ. None of us just get kind of this like pass, right? To where we can just do whatever we want and believe whatever we want. So we gotta be careful with that. The second advantage that the Jews had was that even though they had been very unfaithful in the past, 
God had made a promise to Abraham, kind of the father of the Jews, and God is faithful when he makes a promise. So here's what's interesting. If you ever look at a map, let's say we had a map up here. I should have shown one. Let's say we have a map of the Exodus. That's when the Jewish people came out of Egypt, crossed the Sinai Peninsula into Israel. It's a pretty straight shot, right? It's not super complicated on how to get there. You just follow the coast, go right up, you're there. If you look at the actual path that they traveled, they didn't go northeast, they went south. They made about 12 figure eights, right, in the Sinai Peninsula, and then they went up to Israel. So what should have taken them just a year or so, took them 40 years, and all the people that, 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 that received the promise initially from God, the original people never even made it. It was their descendants. Because they had been so unfaithful to God, they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. But even though they were unfaithful, God still delivered on his promise. But here's the thing. Just because God is faithful does not give us license to be unfaithful. Paul says, absolutely not. In God's grace, we receive more than we're ever faithful for, but we should still try to be faithful, okay? That's the point he's trying to make. And so in verse five through eight, Paul is making the argument that just because God is gracious, just because God is good, doesn't give us the right to abuse that grace by doing whatever we want. So in our very selfish human nature, we all tend to gravitate towards what we want. And we all tend to gravitate towards, look at the, the word gymnastics I did here. We have made Jesus into this kind of like emasculated Santa Claus in the sky that just gives us gifts all the time, but never holds us accountable for our evil. And that is not the biblical Jesus. But we often think that Jesus is just up there, so when we can call on him and rain down some blessings on me, don't hold me into account, don't tell me how to live, but bless me, bless me, bless me. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the great author in the 1940s, said this makes God's grace cheap. When we receive the grace of God, but do not live righteously, it is dishonoring to God, it is cheap grace, he calls it. So we need to be careful. Just because God is good doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. That's not what that means. And I would also think that all of us in this room, everyone watching online, that we come to church, that we break open the word of God, that we sing these songs, because I hope deep down in all of us that we come approaching God for God to change us. But the point Paul is trying to make is we cannot, ex we not, we cannot expect transformation if we, are star, if we are still living in rebellion to God, if we are still sinning, we cannot expect God to transform us. And I believe the reason why a lot of people have not experienced the transformation that God offers us is because they have not given God all of them. I'll give you an example with money. People come up and they're like, we can just never get on our feet. And the first thing I always think is, are you being faithful to God with your finances? Are you tithing? Are you living within your means? Are you materialistic? Are you greedy? What's important to you? Have you relented your finances over to God? If you haven't, the book of Malachi says that your finances are cursed. God cannot bless something that you will not give him. It's the same thing with marriage. I keep praying for God to bless our marriage. Well, do you respect your husband? No. Does he treat you like Jesus treats the church? Well, no. We cannot expect the blessings of God if we are not living in accordance to God's commands and what he wants us to do. Unless we fully submit to him, 
God cannot completely transform us. God does not want 98.8% of you. God wants 100%. And it is only when we fully give in to that and submit that God transforms us, okay? But the point is this, and here it's gonna get worse, guys. We are all guilty. Guilty, guilty. Paul's gonna let us have it. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles, that's non-Jews, are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have never known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that we are terrible. All of us have fallen short. All of us have made mistakes, but we'll get to that here in a minute. So Paul says this. He says, okay, he's speaking of Jews, but again, we can say North American Christians for our sake. Just because we have more knowledge, just because we have access to more, just because we have experienced prosperity in this nation, does that mean we're better? Paul says, not at all. He makes it clear that some people may have more privileges in this life, but that doesn't mean that God loves them any more than people that don't have privileges in this life. Here's the other side of that. When we think we're better off because we have more knowledge and more resources, Paul makes it clear in chapter two, you're gonna be held responsible for that. So in the United States where we have access to freedom of worship, access to the Bible, we live in a very prosperous nation, maybe the most prosperous that's ever existed. We are gonna be held accountable for the advantages that we have had. So we need to take that into balance, right? Well, look how much we have here. You're gonna be held accountable for how much you have. For, much, for, for people who have been given much, much is expected out of them. And so Paul, though, again, makes it clear, though we may have more advantages in the United States, for instance, everyone's under sin. Again, this narrative right now that you're good, I'm good, we're all just good. You do enough nice things for people, we're good. If I'm woke enough, right, I'm good. If I'm politically correct enough, I'm good. We're all good. Paul says, no, you're not. Every single one of you are under sin. All people have fallen short. Therefore, you're not good. We all need a savior. So whenever I hear Christians say, I think we're all just good by nature, then why do we need Jesus? We have all fallen short. That's why we need a savior. And Paul says, this isn't a new idea. Humans have always sucked, right? They have always fallen short. They have always done terrible things. They've always lacked understanding and they've always had a desire to please themselves more than they've had a desire to please God. That's our natural inclination. Now listen, Paul is not telling us how terrible, how terrible we are because he wants to make us feel bad. Paul is saying this to highlight the fact that we need God. He's doing this out of love. 
any parent in this room, any good parent in this room, right? If, you're, if your child is about to run into traffic, you grab them, right? You might even have to pop them on the butt. You don't do that because you, you hate them or because you want to hurt them. You do them because they almost got hit by a car. That's why you catch them and chastise them. Don't go that way. Jesus does the same thing with us. It's out of a loving posture that Jesus says, the wages of your lifestyle are death. Don't go that way. Go this way. So this book, when you read this book, I guarantee you it's going to hurt your feelings at times. It rebukes. It corrects. That's not easy, but it's because God loves us. And it is from that posture of love that we find salvation and freedom. Now listen, here's what's important. We are also to hold each other accountable. So brother, if I know that you're addicted to porn and it's ruining your marriage, and if I find that out, I'm gonna talk to you about it. I don't do it from a place of condemnation because we've all fallen short. But I do it from a place of love because I don't want your marriage to fall apart. I don't want your kids to get addicted to that crap too. I don't want your kids to, to push away from you and to ruin relationships. So it's out of a place of love that we also hold each other accountable, right? To the words of God. And so what the Bible really asks us to do, I find this very interesting. All the Bible asks us to do is to uphold the standards that we already claim to follow. What does that mean? If you're in this room and you say that you are a Christian, you are saying to the world around you, I follow Jesus wherever he leads. So every single word of this book was inspired by God straight from the Holy Spirit through the people who wrote it. That means that every word that is in this book is there for a reason and we're to adhere to it. So when we say we follow Jesus, but we come across scripture in here that we don't like, we're, you're basically saying to the leader, I don't trust where you're taking me. Paul says it this way. It's like if the clay looks up to the potter and says, why are you making me like this? The answer, the rhetorical answer is, because I'm the creator, right? I make you however I please. I mold you however I please. God's the architect. Listen, how audacious and arrogant for us, the creation, to look at the creator God and say, do you know what you're doing? Isn't that audacious? Isn't that arrogant? Isn't that silly? Yet we do it quite often. So another thing that Paul is saying is the rules do not set us free. This is interesting. Paul is saying that the Ten Commandments do not liberate us. It's not what sets us free. It doesn't save us. Why? Because Jesus made it very clear in the book of Matthew that we are incapable of following the Ten Commandments. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't honor it. I'll get to that later. But whenever people get arrogant and they're like, well, Corey, I follow the Ten Commandments. Jesus says, well, hold on a second. You say you've never committed adultery. You ever lusted? Well, we all lust. Then you've all committed adultery in your heart, Jesus says. Well, then people go, well, I've never committed murder, never done that. And Jesus says, you ever had hatred in your heart? Well, yeah, then you've committed murder in your heart. The point that Jesus is making is, is you can't follow the rules on your own. The law, all the Ten Commandments does is tell us what we should and shouldn't do. It's, it's the guardrails. But this road that is the Ten Commandments points towards the one that can save us, and that is Jesus. It is only by God's grace, it is only by the Holy Spirit that we can be set free of sin's claims. The Ten Commandments just show us the direction to go in. The entire Old Testament is just pointing to Jesus. The entire New Testament is just pointing to Jesus. The law, the commands, is all pointing towards him. So, we have gotten the hard stuff out of the way. We're terrible. 
We can't save ourselves. We can't even follow the very commands that God gave us. So what is the key? How are we saved? And Paul's going to tell us we are saved by faith. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. That's the Old Testament. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Jesus as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. So the bad news is we are awful. The bad news is we have fallen short. We are selfish. Chapter two says that we deserve death. We have no hope of saving ourselves. That sounds like terrible news. And if we stop there, that's pretty depressing. But in verse 21, Paul drops the, the, the two-word bomb. But now. You are awful. You are lost. There was no hope. But now. The good news is, is we have an answer to our depravity. We have an answer to our addiction. We have an answer to our hopelessness. And it has been revealed all throughout the Old Testament. And it is shown in Jesus Christ. That is our hope. The key to salvation is faith in Jesus. Another positive thing, it sounds like it's negative, but it's actually really positive. As Paul says again, we have all fallen short. So here's the beauty in that. If you've looked at pornography and feel guilty, if you have been greedy and you feel guilty, you are not isolated in that because all of us have messed up. Everyone in this room has sinned. Everyone has fallen short. We have all made mistakes. So sin doesn't have to isolate you because we've all done it. All of us. And so because all of us have sinned, all of us need saving, all of us have access to Jesus. And the great news is that we are justified, which means even though we have been evil, if we will give our lives to Jesus, we can be made right before God. We can be righteous people freely receiving grace and we are redeemed. I underline because I love that word. When God created humanity, sin came in and kind of stole us briefly. But through Jesus Christ, we are bought back. The ownership now belongs to God, not to our sinful lifestyles, not to evil. He redeems us by Jesus Christ. That's what has taken place. And so Jesus came as a sacrifice because humanity had been so evil, a price needed to be paid, and it was going to take blood because the evil was so out of control. But Jesus came to shed that blood, to demonstrate his righteousness by being the sacrifice. And because, listen, we deserve death. We, didn't, we don't have to experience death now because of our sin. Jesus came and took our punishment for us. He felt the ramifications of what we have done. So we don't have to feel it. And we are, we are unable 
to be made right by the good things we do. There's no amount of good things you can do that make you good. There's no amount of rules you can follow that make you good. So because God knows that we are incapable of being good in and of ourselves, he comes down and makes us good. He comes down and stands before us and he advocates for us. We're going to get to that a little bit more here in a minute too. So what's interesting is this. I hear Christians say this all the time and it's not really true. We say, I serve a fair God. We don't. If God was fair, every single one of us would burn for eternity. We have all deserved death. Not one of us has earned salvation. If God was fair, we'd all go to hell. God is not fair. God is good. God is good and he's gracious. And so because, look at this, because Jesus became the mercy seat. Let me tell you what that means. In the Old Testament, what the high priest would do is he would sacrifice an animal. He would put the blood in a bowl. He would walk into what was called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant sat. If you don't know what that is, the first Indiana Jones, right? The big gold box. Look at it, you melt, that, that thing. So that box, it's funny how many people are like, gotcha, right? So the high priest would walk in with the blood and he would pour the blood on the top of the ark. The top of the ark was called the mercy seat. There was two angels and in the middle of that, that represented the, the, the glory of God, the presence of God. What this symbolized is humanity was so evil that there had to be a blood sacrifice to pay for it. And because of that sacrifice, there was mercy. Here's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came and he said, listen, I'll shed my blood and my blood will cover sin forever. I will become the mercy of God. I will become the mercy seat. And because God did this, we now have the opportunity to have something that we could never purchase on our own, salvation. Nothing we could do, right? Hey, thank you to that person back there in that corner. Thank you. So again, what's the key? The key that unlocks all this is faith. Now, I say this all the time. Faith is not just believing in Jesus. It's much more than that. Faith is, is not only believing in him, it's trusting him. It's doing what he tells you to do. It's relying on him. Good example. So my buddy, Zach, that was playing drums this week, he's a fantastic mechanic. It's not what he does for a living. It's just a hobby. He's an old car guy. I'm an old car guy. He owns a couple old cars. I own a couple old cars. And we help each other out. By helping each other out, I mean he does all the work and I just do what he tells me to. Anyways, <laughs> what, recently uh, I've, I've got an old Ford and, and I had to pull the whole engine and, and he tore it all down and he's building it back up and I'm helping a little bit when I can and I'm just the guy scrubbing parts basically. But anyway, so, so here's the thing. It's not just enough for me to believe that Zach is a really good mechanic. I actually have to trust him to take the engine out, to pull the engine apart, to fix what is wrong with it and to put it back together. So I have to trust him with the engine of my car, right? Hope you see the analogy. Not only do I have to trust him that when I'm helping him and he says, hey man, just, just grab a hammer and, and, and pound that part out. I'm like, really? Just bang on it? Trust me. Okay, I have faith. You're a better mechanic than me. You know how to put the engine together. I'll do what you tell me to do. And it works, right? Because he's the master mechanic and I'm not. It's the same thing with our lives. It's not enough to just say that Jesus is the Savior. I have to trust my wife and kids with him. I have to trust my future with him. When he tells me to walk, even if I don't understand the direction, God, you know better than me. You know everything. You see everything. I don't. I'm going to do it even though I don't understand it. I have to rely on Jesus to take me apart and put me back the way that I need to be put back. 
And if we have this kind of true faith, look at what happens. Look, look how neat this is. God is the judge of all hu humankind, right? But when we have faith in Jesus, not only is God the judge, God also becomes the defense attorney for us. So not only does he judge if we go to heaven or hell, if we have followed Jesus Christ, he also defends us. So the same one that judges us defends us, which means if we have been on his side and if he's on ours, we go to heaven, right? Because the judge and the defense attorney are working together for us. And we are delivered from guilt and shame and the ramifications of sin, and we get to go to heaven and be with him for eternity. So since we are saved by grace through faith, I love how Paul frames this out. He says, just because you've been given grace doesn't mean that you shouldn't live a holy lifestyle. So we have been saved by grace through faith, but that doesn't mean we should just kick the, the Ten Commandments to the curb. Even though we're going to fall and even though we're going to make mistakes, we should try to uphold all the commands of God. And so though, we can, you know, though we're going to make those mistakes, we have to keep pursuing holiness. It's like getting married, isn't it? We get married, and that doesn't mean, okay, we're married. We don't have to do anything anymore. No, 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 no. Your relationship's just getting started. It's the same thing with God. Just because we're saved doesn't mean we just stop doing anything. We want to keep growing in holiness and getting closer to him. And the thing about that is God doesn't demand perfection out of us. God wants persistence out of us. He wants us to want him, right? Cheap trick. So it's the same thing. All of you in your 50s are looking over at the 20-year-olds going, that's a band. <laughs> 40s, not 50s. I'm so sorry. Okay, so fun story. About a, it's been a couple of years ago, back when concerts were still a thing. Um, uh, Devin Sweat, who, who works here, a uh, younger guy, he's 17 or 18. A couple of years ago, his mom always gets all these free tickets to shows all the time. And so I've gotten to see a lot of great bands because of Michelle. And, and um, she got a hold of me and she said, hey, I've got four tickets to see <laughs> Poison and Cheap Trick. Do you want to go? And I'm like, well, yeah, I want to go back to 1987. Sure. <laughs> and so uh, me, Zach, Josh Brooker and Devin, we took Devin. Devin was 15 at the time. And Cheap Trick comes out there. And I was like, Devin, you ever seen Cheap Trick? He goes, this is the fifth time I've seen Cheap Trick. I was like, Devin, you're 15, and I bet you have seen Cheap Trick more than any 60-year-old in this amphitheater right now. <laughs> That's crazy. That, that story, that, that was it. All right, here we go. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No. On the contrary, by the law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, the Gentiles too. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So here's what he's saying. The Christian has no room to be arrogant. Why do we have no room to be arrogant about our salvation? It's like being cocky about something that someone gave you. You didn't earn it. Someone gave it to you. 
We have no right to be boastful about something that we never earned. God gave us salvation. It was free. So Christians should be humble people. We should always be humble people. And Jesus actually talks about this in the gospel. He says, Christians or believers that are arrogant, you end up just kind of looking like a fool. I love how Jesus gives us party etiquette. That's what he does in Luke chapter 14. Luke, or, or Jesus says in Luke, he says, if you go to a party and everyone's sitting at a big banquet table and there's a seat right next to the host, Jesus says, don't go sit right next, by, right next to the host. Because if you go sit there and you find out the seat is taken and you have to move, you're going you're gonna to look dumb. Jesus says, instead, go sit way down in the humble section, the nosebleeds, right? Go sit way over there. And when the host asks you to get up and move closer, you're honored by that. The point of the story is, is as a Christian, be humble. So here's why we should be humble. We are incapable of being good. Without God's help, we cannot be saved. We cannot honor the law. It is only by God's goodness. It is only by God's grace. We need to get it real deep inside of us, right? That everything good that comes out of us is not because there's any good in us. It's because Jesus is in us. All good and perfect things come from him. So if you live in a big house and make a lot of money, praise God, that's wonderful. But it's not you. Jesus gave you that work ethic. If you make a 36 on your ACTs and you get puffed up about that, you didn't create your brain. God created your brain. If you're a really attractive person, that's fantastic. I wish I knew what that felt like. But if you're walking around and you're like, look, look, I'm really good looking. God made your body. God made your face. We have nothing to be arrogant about. Nothing. Because it's all in God's hands and not ours. And so the, the Ten Commandments should humble us even more and put us on the right path. I love what Paul says. He says, do we get rid of the law because we have faith? No. Should we get rid of the rules because we have grace? No. He says, on the contrary, you should try even harder to follow the rules. You should try even harder to follow the Ten Commandments. Because again, this is maybe the fourth time I've said this. Just because we've been saved by grace doesn't mean we can live however we want. Doesn't mean we can be arrogant and cocky. We're all gonna fall at times, but if we submit to Jesus and if we aim to follow the commands of God, God forgives us, he honors us, he moves us forward, okay? So here comes the honesty piece today, okay? Let's be honest with each other. The first thing we need to be really honest about, and I'm telling you, most of us have made this mistake, if not all of us. Do we use that scripture in chapter three of Romans that all have sinned as an excuse to sin? Well, Corey, I know that I'm looking at pornography, but I'm not, I'm not sleeping with my boyfriend like she is. Listen, let me tell you something about Jesus. When we all stand in front of Christ and we're judged for what we've done, you're not gonna be able to blame your parents. You're not gonna be able to compare yourself to someone. Well, it was Donald Trump, that's why everything's so bad. Right? You're not gonna be able to blame everyone else because Jesus is gonna say, we're not talking about your parents. I'm talking about what did you do? What did you do? We're all gonna be held accountable for what we've done. And listen, when we start comparing and that my sin's not as bad as you know, this person's sin over here, that's called self-righteousness and God hates it. God hates it. So here's the thing. Have you and I used the excuse? Well, everyone else is doing it, right? Everyone sins. We're all just sinners. <laughs> do we say that just so we can get away with the sin that we're comfortable with? Do we do that sometimes? Do we use it as an excuse? I have. We're just being honest, right? Do we welcome all of the instruction of this book? <laughs> all of it, right? 
I'm gonna tell you what, I'm the second time I've said it today. If you read this book, you're gonna come across some stuff where you're like, oh, I do that, and I gotta stop. Do we welcome that? When we read that part in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where it says people that get drunk will not inherit the kingdom of God, but Corey, it was, it was my girl's night. It's Friday. Because God just chills out and takes a break on Friday. There's no sin on Fridays. It's my girl's, right? We're in a different zip code. Drunkenness doesn't matter if you're on the beach. Is sin sin all the time? It is. And when we come across those parts of the Bible that really take a shot straight at us, God, I welcome that. Because you know what? God is not telling you not to get drunk because he doesn't want you to have a good time. God's telling you not to get drunk because you're going to cheat on your wife. Because you're going to beat your kids. Because you're going to get in a car and hurt somebody. Because it's not good for you. Because the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, that the devil walks around like a roaring lion looking to devour you. That's why it says be sober. Be vigilant. Because in intoxication, you're going to get a hurt. That's why God tells us that. Do we welcome that? Do we understand that we need God's help? We need his grace. We cannot be good in and of ourselves. You're good. You're not good. Apart from Jesus, there is nothing good about us. We cannot be good in front of God without God's help. We cannot be righteous before the judge without the same judge acting as our attorney. We cannot do it. Have we made excuses? Have we been set free? Maybe. Is it possible that some of us in this room have not experienced complete freedom from addiction or lust or greed or hatred because we have not relented completely to God? I believe God is here to set us free. That's why the Bible says it a gazillion times that the truth sets us free, but we have to completely submit to that truth. And maybe the reason some of us have not had freedom is there's that little part of our life that we just want to hold back for ourselves. Do you know what? You need to read the book of Jeremiah, where in the book of Jeremiah it says, God has good things for you. When we give our lives over to Jesus, it's not bad, it's better. God has bigger plans for you than you even have for yourself. Better things for you. And our problem is, is we don't trust him. So, well, God, I'll follow you, but can I have this one thing? Jesus says, no, 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 you got to give it all to me. But he also says, if you give it all to me, it'll be better. You'll be free. Here's some good news. Do we realize that no matter how evil we have been, we have an advocate that loves us, that can deliver us from evil. I'll even go so far that if we pray it, he'll even keep temptation at bay. Do we have someone fighting for us? Do we believe that? Do we believe that there's nothing we can do to be saved? It is not us. Not just salvation, but pure love, that feeling of pure, real love. Not the love that that, I almost said a bad word. Not the love that that guy that just talks you into sleeping with him one night. Not, not this fake pseudo love. Not the love of a bunch of thumbs up on your Instagram. They don't do thumbs, they do hearts, whatever they do. That's not real love. Only from God, nothing that we can buy or purchase can we experience real love. Real salvation. Let me tell you what. Salvation and love I have found pretty quickly. I didn't find peace until I was 40 years old. 
I'm 41 right now. And ironically enough, let me tell you when I finally got peace. It was in the middle of COVID. In the middle of COVID and an election season, it was the perfect storm for chaos, right? And I remember we were in the middle of this place being shut down. The most we could have at the building at any time was 10 people. So we would do prayer and stuff that a lot of people didn't show up to. And I would get in here and teach to a big empty room. And I remember in the middle of all that, in the middle of COVID, when it was real bad, it hit me. I am completely out of control. I have no control. No control. Nothing I can do. I'm a fixer by nature. I don't know if anyone else in this room is. I want to fix stuff. You give me a problem, let's fix it. At that point, I had to sit back and go, I can't fix this. And it was the first time in my, my 18 years of being saved that I just said, God, my future is totally in your hands. If, if church is never a thing after this, if I could get another job, if, if we have to sell this building, if, if I have to, whatever, I, God, I, I can't do anything, here you go. And for the first time in my life, I felt a real peace that passed all understanding. And in the middle of all this election, in the middle of all this economic garbage, in the middle of all the COVID scare and everyone's gonna die and ah, we're all gonna be communists and then we're dead and everything's gonna happen, right? I sat back the whole time and I said, I feel pretty good. I just had this peace. My wife felt at peace. I felt at peace. My kids felt at peace. I've had several employees come up to me and say, Corey, you just become a peaceful person. Never thought I'd hear that. God can give us that. There's nothing we can do to earn that. You can't buy it. I don't care how big of a house you get. You can't buy peace. I don't care how nice your car is. You can't buy peace. I don't care how much weed you smoke. You can't buy peace. I don't care how many girls you have sex with. You can't buy peace. You can't earn it. There's no amount of homeless people you can feed or, or, or nonprofit initiatives you can start. Only the Prince of Peace can give us peace. It is only by him. And this gift, this gift of salvation, this gift of peace, this gift of love, we should not become arrogant in that. It should humble us because we know it wasn't us. We didn't do it. We just said yes. That's all we did. So here's the thing. We come into this place and we talk about big things. Today we talked about salvation, that we are saved through grace and faith. What is faith? This is faith. Here's the definition of faith. Repenting, believing in, trusting in, obeying, and relying on Jesus. If we will have faith in Jesus, which is those things, you will be saved. You'll be saved here. Your life will change here. And you will have an eternity with the creator God in paradise. If you do these things. That's a promise. And God doesn't break his promises. That those who have faith will be saved. Those that call on his name will be saved. We're promised that. Now listen, after you're saved, you're still going to make mistakes every once in a while. You may make a lot less. They might be lighter mistakes than what you used to make, but you're still going to make mistakes. Let me tell you how good God is, though, that when we make those mistakes, if we genuinely say, Father, I am sorry. I did this thing that, 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 you don't, that doesn't honor you. I'm sorry about that. God says, Corey, come on. I love you. You're forgiven. We're going to keep moving forward. The Old Testament says that when we ask for God to forgive us, our sins are cast into the deep sea. I love that. It says in the Old Testament that when we ask for forgiveness of sin, that the sin is as far away from us as the east is from the west. If there is a book on all of our lives, which it says in the book of Matthew that there is, when we repent for sin, 
God pulls out his big eraser. And he erases that part. So when I stand in front of Christ, if I have repented for my sin, all the things in the, in the book of Corey's life are just good things. Isn't that amazing? What a good God that we serve. What a generous, loving God that we serve. But let me ask you something. We come into this room. We come into this room to talk about eternity. Now listen, your marriage plays into that. How you raise your kids plays into that. How you treat your neighbor plays into that. How you work plays, all these things play into it. But at the end of the day, you and I, and if you're watching online, you have, you have come into this environment because we are asking the biggest question. Why are we here? And what happens when we die? We're talking about eternity. And I think what is so troublesome for me sometimes is we treat this like it's a cute side, like a cute side project. I went to church. It was cool. Spent an hour and a half with God this week, right? That's enough. When is the last time? Listen, and I'm not, I'm not saying this from a place of condemnation because I need to do it more. When is the last time, as David said, you just got still? And you really meditated and thought about what we're doing here, that, that we're talking to God, the designer, the architect, the artist, the creator. We're talking to God here. This isn't a game. This isn't a roll of the dice. This isn't just something we do on a Sunday morning. This is everything. This is eternity. And not just for yourself. But that person in the office that you just can't stand, they're either going to go to heaven or be eternally separated from God in hell. Everyone you lay your eyes on, your children, your family, this is heaven and hell we're talking about. What is on the line? Everything is on the line. This is a big deal. And you and I get the opportunity to not just be saved and escape hell. Listen, I get the opportunity to right now, if I speak to God, the God of the universe hears me, knows me, cares for me, loves me, but he's not like me. He's much bigger than I am. We have tried in North American Christianity to bring Jesus to our eye level, and that is not the way it works. Revelation chapter four, John says he walked in and he saw one sitting on the throne and there was lightning and rolls of thunder and emerald rainbows. And it said that there were elders that were bowing down and angels flying around saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And John said, I saw that there was a sea of glass between he and I. And that sea of glass is a representation of that is God and I am just the creation. That is the creator, and I am just one of his creations. He is enormous, and I am very small. He's not like us, but he wants to have a relationship with us. When's the last time you just got real still? This is eternity. I have done so much evil, yet God loves me. He sent his son for me. He wants to talk to me. 
He wants to be with me forever. It's big. It's real big. And I think we often forget it. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, if you are in this room and, and maybe you do not have a relationship with God, maybe you have questions, maybe you're new, maybe you struggle with faith. Listen, we're not afraid of questions around here. Up here on my right, your left, Pastor Carl is up here, a guy that did announcements. If you have any questions for Carl, he'd love to talk with you. Love to talk with you. We have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, anything, please come talk to them. The last thing is, guys, you have communion in your hand. Let me, let me focus on that just for a second. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me every single time you gather. That's why we do communion every time we gather together, because Jesus told us to. When we do this, this is a time, guys, for us to meditate, to reflect. It's a time also for us to say, God, forgive me. I have been evil. I have done wrong. And God graciously forgives us. And we can take that wine and we can take that bread and we can sit for a second and say, wow, I get to talk to God. I have the opportunity to be saved by God, to receive peace. That we can sit and meditate and speak to him and almost just kind of soak in the fact that the God of the universe knows how many hairs are on your head. He knew you before you were knit together in your mother's womb. He loves you. He's there for you. He advocates for you. Father, Lord, we love you. God, I pray, Lord, that you just keep your hand on us. God, we've all fallen short, all of us. But Lord, thank you for your grace that reaches out, God, that extends a hand, that helps us out of the ditch that we've been in. God bless the brothers and sisters in this room. God bless all my friends. God bless everyone watching online. Lord, protect the families, protect the marriages, protect the single people in here, protect the student and the, and the boss and the employer and the employee. God, protect the, all of us in this place, Lord. Keep your hand on us, God. We love you, we thank you, we lift you up, and we pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you guys so much.